Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has confirmed the drawdown of British troops stationed in Afghanistan. We'll discuss what the future holds for the country. Military personnel are preparing to play their part in the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh this weekend. It seems to have gone to uh, the standard we would expect at this stage. There's work to do, but we're confident that we are ready for Saturday. We'll hear more about the plans and look back at the Duke's wartime service in the Navy with a former captain of HMS Ark Royal who met the Duke on several occasions. Well, he was clearly very fit. He was clearly full of initiative and he was clearly very brave. Throughout his life, the Duke kept his very close associations with the military. We'll be discussing his legacy shortly. But first, Afghanistan, with the news last night that Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has confirmed the drawdown of UK military personnel stationed there. It follows the decision by the United States to withdraw all of its troops by the 11th of September, two decades after the 9-11 terror attacks which sparked the conflict there. The war has cost the lives around 2,400 American service personnel and 454 British military and civilian personnel. President Biden says troops need to refocus on new threats. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. Rather than return to war with the Taliban, we have to focus on the challenges that are in front of us. We have to track and disrupt terrorist networks and operations that spread far beyond Afghanistan since 9-11. Ben Wallace has said any attacks on allied troops will be met with a forceful response, although the Speaker of the Afghan Parliament has warned the withdrawal could lead to civil war. The chairman of the Defence Select Committee and former captain in the Royal Green Jackets, Conservative MP Tobias Elwood, agrees. I fear that not only will there be a civil war, but it'll give more space for terrorism to develop and advance and uh, cause problems for the West itself. This isn't just a problem for the West. It's also a problem for the country itself. Well, Sir William Patey was UK ambassador to Afghanistan until 2012. I asked him earlier for his response to the news. Well, it's not unexpected. Um, Donald Trump, the previous American administration, had made a sort of a deal with the Taliban, an interim deal with the Taliban in which US troops were due to leave by May uh, in return for various uh, concessions by the Taliban, reduction in violence, etc. Clearly, uh, the, the Taliban haven't lived up to their side of the bargain, uh, and clearly the Americans are not going to leave by May, but they've obviously taken a strategic decision that in the long term, they're not going to be there. The conditions will probably never be there for them to have a conditions-based withdrawal. So that's why we're seeing an American unconditional withdrawal. Uh, there are no conditions attached to the U.S. withdrawal on the 11th of September. They've, uh, they've had enough. So what choices does the U.K. have? Well, I don't think they have many. Um, the, the, the NATO presence is about 7,000 troops. Americans constitute just under half of that. They provide quite a lot of the critical assets, the special forces, the, uh, the air support for the Afghan army. Um, it'd be hard to see NATO remaining in Afghanistan in their current form without the American component. So. I think we may see some uh, announcements. I think Lloyd Austin has been in in discussions with NATO. So 
watch this space for what happens to the rest of NATO troops. Do you then think that UK troops will leave at the same time as the US troops? May not be exactly the same time. I mean, the US, the UK is troops number less than a thousand. They're mainly concentrated on supporting the Afghan officers training college, what we called Sandhurst in the Sand. Question is, will they be able to sustain any physical presence to support that, support that institution beyond a, a wider withdrawal of American and perhaps some other NATO troops? And how do you think the war in Afghanistan will be viewed by history? If you look at the historical sweep, it will be a yet another occasion when foreign troops have entered Afghanistan and the complexities of Afghanistan have done them in, really. It's very difficult to achieve your objectives in Afghanistan if you have parties who want to spoil, and there are plenty spoilers in Afghanistan. My personal view is I always thought that NATO troops could not deliver peace and stability in Afghanistan. The Afghans had to do that themselves, but it would require a sustained support of uh, a democratic Afghan government over many decades. So uh, even when I was there in 2010 and we were talking about uh, a handover to Afghan forces, the original timetable was 2014, <laughs> we would hand over to Afghan forces. I always said, but it would require decades of support. And what we haven't managed to do is transition from direct engagement in the conflict to an Afghan security force army capable of holding its own against insurgency. And that's what we failed to do. But that was always going to be decades long. And I think that's the missed opportunity here, that we haven't just transitioned to a long-term support for an Afghan government trying its best in difficult circumstances. Sir William Patey there. Well, with me now is Shashank Joshi, Defence Editor of The Economist, and Professor Michael Clark, former Director of the Defence Think Tank, RUSI. Michael Clark, what lies ahead, do you think, for British forces in Afghanistan? Well, uh, withdrawal itself won't be particularly difficult. As, as uh, Master Patey said, there's 750 there. Most of them are at the training centre in Kabul. Others are doing personal uh, protection missions around the city itself. And although the Taliban are saying in the last 24 hours, well, we have won and we will target NATO forces as they leave in order to show that we've won. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll try to, as it were, cause some chaos as, as forces withdraw. That's what they say. I don't really believe that they'll probably do that because the costs will exceed the, the gains that they would make. So getting British forces out will be pretty straightforward, not without risk. Um, but reasonably straightforward. And then after that, I mean, I think Britain will try to think of ways in which it might be able to help the training programme more remotely, perhaps by having more Afghan officers come to the UK uh, to train or to go somewhere else, say in Qatar, in the Middle East, to Doha. Um, the, the, there may be ways in which, you, in which Britain can help support these efforts, but uh, uh, you know, remotely it will be very difficult. So we can continue, continue to make a contribution, but there's not much that British forces can do to prevent whatever is going to happen next, which is probably now going to be a prolonged civil war between the government and Taliban forces. Mm. Shashank Joshi, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani tweeted last night that Afghanistan's defence forces are fully capable of defending its people and country. Is he right? I would say no, he's not right. Um, I think if you look at the military record of the past year or so, Afghan forces have been on the back foot. They lack the ability to resupply remote outposts. They lack basic things like medical evacuation of casualties. Um, they lack uh, proficiency in air power, which has been so vital to preventing the Taliban from massing in large formations. Um, and the Taliban have increased their presence inside cities 
uh, around uh, around the, the uh, roads for vital cities like Kandahar, Jalalabad, even Kabul itself. Um, you know, last year I think the um, uh, a key uh, um, uh, official who looks at reconstruction in Afghanistan, a U.S. official, said that the Afghan security forces were, I think the quote was, a hopeless nightmare. And I have to say, I I share that view. You know, this is no slight on their courage or the way they fought or the sacrifices they have made, which have been enormous, considerably more than Western forces. But I'm afraid to say this is not a force that I think can resist uh, very serious Taliban advance, uh, advances in, in the coming period. So I think Ashraf Ghani faces a really, really severe challenge. And Michael Clark, President Biden said, while we will not stay involved in Afghanistan militarily, our diplomatic and humanitarian work will continue. And he pledged to continue providing assistance to Afghan defence and security forces. How easy will that be in practice without troops stationed there? Well, what the Americans are putting their faith in is this new version of the deal that President Trump negotiated, but, but Biden has, has, as it were, taken it over and tried to give put his stamp on it. And particularly Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has tried to do this. They've been very tough on Ashraf Ghani, and they've said, you know, you will get into negotiations, and if you don't, then we've got alternatives of will. And they've even mentioned, you know, Abdullah Abdullah or even Hamid Karzai, who might be brought back in, as it were, if, if Ashraf Ghani can't deliver. So they've been very tough on Kabul. But they've also tried to be increasingly tough on Pakistan to lean on the Taliban to actually go into some sort of meaningful negotiation. And the Americans have got more international support behind this effort. They've got, you know, they're doing it through the UN. There's a, a conference in uh, in Turkey uh, at the end of uh, April. So there's some diplomatic push behind all of this. But I have to say, I think we're clutching at straws because if the Taliban leadership decide that they want to fight, then there's not much that can, can stop them. But mm. some influence can be exerted through Islamabad, through Pakistan, to restrain uh, the Taliban and see what else comes out in Afghanistan, some sort of transitional government leading to new elections, new government over 2021-22. That's their best hope anyway. And Shashank, do you share that view uh, that this will lead to civil war and that the Speaker of the Afghan Parliament also warned that fact as well? I think it's it would be my most likely scenario, but there are others as well. Um, you know, don't forget the U.S. will still be paying the salaries of Afghan security forces. They currently spend about forty billion dollars a year on the conflict. Much of that could go to supporting the Afghan forces, their salaries, their weapons, their capabilities, and other powers are involved here as well. You have Russia, China, Iran, uh, India, and specifically in the nineteen nineties in the Afghan civil conflict, India. Iran and Russia uh, funded, armed and supported the so-called Northern Alliance, the Hazaras, the Tajiks, the, the Uzbek ethnic groups in northern Afghanistan. And I think they are they are now doing so again and will expand that support. And, and so the Taliban will face resistance. They will face, um, you know, they will face uh, uh, opposition. And of course, they also have enjoyed the diplomatic legitimacy of the last several years, having offices in Doha, being able to travel, having a degree of international recognition. If they simply take over cities, if they repeat the atrocities of the 1990s, they will lose all of that recognition. Um, and I think that 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 may also be something of a, uh, a, a dissuasive element. Um, but Shashank, they also, also don't have the support of many of the people, do they, the Taliban? 
Well, I'm not sure that's true. Of course, you know, people don't want to be ruled over with an iron fist. Uh, but that's not that's not the option they face. You know, uh, if you look at local Afghan areas, sometimes what they say is um, local justice by the Taliban is brutal, but it is less corrupt than that provided by the government or whichever local warlord is standing in for the government in that particular area. No one wants to see a return to the closure of girls' education and, and beatings in stadiums and so on. But I think when you compare it to the brutality uh, and corruption of a local force in, in areas in Afghanistan, I think the picture is com- considerably less clear-cut. And uh, Michael Clark, how do you think the war in Afghanistan will be seen? Uh, well, I think in the last 20 years, Afghanistan is socially and economically better off than it, it was. There is a degree of education. 40% of the pupils in schools are girls. There is more infrastructure. There is more export. Lots of things are better. But this is what strategic defeat looks like. Um, from a Western point of view, and Afghanistan will suffer for this strategic defeat because here we are in 2021 and we are back to square one as of uh, 9-11, 2001. We are settling for what was on the table in 2001-2002 with the difference that now the Taliban are stronger than they were then. And so this is, we've gone full circle and this is a strategic defeat. And in a way, maybe President Biden is to be commended for having the courage to accept defeat. And Michael, the date set coincides with the 20th anniversary of the Al-Qaeda attacks on the US. What do you think might have happened if this foreign intervention hadn't happened? Yes, I mean, there is an alternative scenario, which is that the West could have intervened in the way they did in 2001, kicked the Taliban out, kicked out Al-Qaeda, maybe made a better job of of catching Al-Qaeda and catching bin Laden, and then left. And, let, and then just let Afghanistan go. What might have happened then? Well, if Afghanistan had fallen then into uh, a civil war, then the, the prospects was that Afghanistan might have split up into a, a northwest based on Kabul and a southeast based around Kandahar, and even an extreme west based on Herat, which is very close to Iran. So Afghanistan might have split into two or even three parts in the 20 years since. So one thing you could say is that this dreadful civil war actually has kept Afghanistan together. That's a possible counterfactual comfort. Well, let's now turn to the situation in Ukraine. And Shashank, Russia continues to build up its forces near the border. President Biden has now spoken to Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, What do you think will happen next? I think that we're in for a very rocky few weeks. The Russian force that is gathered in Ukraine is the biggest since 2014, the year that Russia invaded Ukraine. We're talking about units that have travelled from thousands of kilometres away, perhaps 40,000 in Crimea, 40,000 on the borders of eastern Ukraine. I think the silver lining of all of this is that the way that these units have been moved, which is to say very visibly, um, you know, visible to satellites, visible to um, other powers looking in, and the fact that they are still on training grounds rather than assembly areas or having dispersed, suggests that Russia's immediate aim is not a big military offensive at this stage. But I think they are rather seeking to extract political concessions from the government of Ukraine. Now, of course, in the coming weeks, that could change. And so uh, it's very, very important to realise this kind of build-up can be uh, uh, used for coercive diplomacy, but it can also be turned over very quickly to something more insidious if circumstances change. And Michael Clark, Moscow says the troop deployment is a response to what it calls NATO's threatening moves. Last week, you suggested that Putin might want to provoke a reaction, but he's certainly got President Biden's attention now. What does he want to achieve with that? 
uh, I think he's very close to achieving it, which is uh, the offer of a summit. I mean, President Biden has said we ought to have a one-to-one summit. And for Putin, that's a victory to be seen to be at the top table again with the President of the United States. Mike Clark, stay with us. Shashank Joshi, thank you very much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. Preparations are underway for the funeral this weekend of the Duke of Edinburgh, a service which will reflect his deep commitment to the armed forces. We'll hear more shortly about the role of the armed forces on Saturday. But first, let's look back at Prince Philip's distinguished career in the Royal Navy. In an interview with BFBS in 1995, the Duke spoke about his time as First Lieutenant on the destroyer HMS Welp in Tokyo Bay, where he witnessed the Japanese surrender. Being in Tokyo Bay with the surrender ceremony taking place in the battleship, which was, what, 200 yards away, and you could see what was going on with a pair of binoculars. It was a great relief. And he recalled when his ship picked up British prisoners of war. Our ship's company recognised that they were also fellow sailors. And so we gave them a cup of tea. But, I mean, it was extraordinary sensation because they just sat there, and, and both sides, I mean, our own and them, I mean, just... Tears pouring down their cheeks. I mean, they, they just drank their tea. They, they, they really couldn't speak. It was the most extraordinary sensation. Well, the naval historian Eric Grove and our late defence analyst Christopher Lee discussed the Prince's naval career on the programme last June on what was his 99th birthday. At the beginning of 1940, when he was sent as a midshipman to the battleship Paramelis that was, that was covering convoys in the Indian Ocean, and then he was transferred also into in the Indian Ocean to the cruisers Kent and and Shropshire and served in Ceylon. Because he was still officially a Greek, there was a certain reluctance for him to be put into a more active theatre. But this changed when Greece came into the war, and so he came to the battleship Valiant and played a a very important frontline role in the Battle of Matapan. In fact, he got mentioned in dispatches for his control of the searchlights that played a key role in the battle. And he saved his ship from night bombers during the invasion of Sicily in July 1943. That's right. He was transferred to the escort destroyer uh, Wallace, She went to cover the invasion of Sicily and was in fact attacked by aircraft. And he made a decoy, a very effective decoy, which the Germans bombed rather than the ship. And everyone on the ship was quite convinced that the first lieutenant, as he now was, he was second in command of the ship, had saved the destroyer. And as we heard, he witnessed history in Tokyo Bay. Absolutely, yes. He then went to the destroyer Welp and uh, he was in Tokyo Bay and was there when the um, armistice was signed on board the battleship Masura. Christopher Lee, when did it all end? At the end of the war, he'd had what we used to call a good war and he could see a, a career ahead of him because at that time he was still a single man. But the more he got involved with the royal family, the more the pressure he got from his uncle Mountbatten. It was clear to everybody that they were going to get married, and they did so in 1947. And at that point, he realised that he wouldn't have a long naval career. You couldn't be a future consort, a future prince or whatever of the Queen of England, and just simply stay in in the Navy. And so when the King died in, in 1952, it was clear from that point, end of naval career. And he said, the career's gone. Now what do I do? And Eric Grove, what do you think was his most formative experience of the war? I think probably being first lieutenant of Wallace. It was his first sort of experience of something approaching command. And of course, after the war, I mean, uh, he did he did continue his naval career to an extent. In fact, the Queen was a naval wife briefly in Malta as first lieutenant of a C-class destroyer and then, of, and then famously captain of the frigate Magpie. 
That was Eric Grove and our late defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Well, earlier I spoke to Vice Admiral Sir Jeremy Blackham, former Deputy Commander-in-Chief Fleet and Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff, and asked him what he thought had made Prince Philip such an accomplished officer. Well, he was clearly very fit. He was clearly full of initiative and he was clearly very brave. But I think he was also very personable. And he comes from the generation or came from the generation, as indeed I do myself, where you were taught to be in love with the Navy. And uh, probably that was another thing that affected him too. I think he was very attached to it indeed. Do you think he might have risen to the very top of the senior service if he hadn't left when he did? I'm sure he would have done very well. He was commanding a frigate when he was a lieutenant commander, which is unusual. In fact, these days impossible. What kind of contacts did you have with him during your long career? Um, well, the very first time was when I was a cadet, and he uh, came and accompanied the Queen, who inspected a passing out parade at the end of my first year at Dartmouth. Uh, what was interesting about that was that Her Majesty walked down the line, smiling a beautiful smile and saying nice things uh, to those of us fallen in waiting. Uh, but the Duke came along behind and asked some very penetrating questions. Uh, he was clearly even much more up to date than we were. Then later on, uh, three times I escorted the Royal Yacht on a, a, a royal tour of some sort or another. On the last occasion, uh, I was commanding HMS Nottingham. And he used to keep a very close eye on the escort. Uh, if you weren't paying attention and you were slightly out of your proper station, you get a sharp message from the Royal Yacht, sometimes saying, from His Royal Highness, uh, telling you to get into the proper place. Uh, and he could tell by eye whether you were or not. What was it like for you when you were escorting him and you felt that uh, he was really on it and watching your every move? I think it was very good for you. Uh, I mean, it certainly kept us on our toes and made us uh, you know, be very careful that we did the right things at the right time. Uh, but I'm bound to say also that when you did things right, or at the end of the trip, uh, you would get a very nice signal saying thank you. Uh, incidentally, he retained his interest, very deep interest, till very, very late in his life. Uh, later on, after I left, I was the editor of the Naval Review, which is an independent professional journal, and he was the senior member. And, uh, occasionally, if something was printed, or I printed something that wasn't quite right, I would get a letter from someone on his staff remarking that the Duke of Edinburgh had noticed something and wondered whether I knew what I was talking about, or was that effect. Uh, and he kept a very close interest, and on the few occasions I met him, he would ask about the Naval Review, and was able to discuss extremely topical and current subjects with detailed knowledge. How do you think he'll be remembered by the service? I think with uh, admiration, uh, with gratitude, uh, and, and a certain amount of trembling for those who actually uh, ever came across him when they hadn't done something quite right. That was Vice Admiral Sir Jeremy Blackham. Well, joining me now is our reporter Charlotte Banks, who was at Purbright yesterday watching the first full rehearsal with hundreds of members of the military involved. Yes, that's right, Kate. And this has been quite a fast turnaround for them, of course. The troops taking part in Saturday's ceremony were only notified last Friday. They've been rehearsing since Monday, but yesterday was the first time that they all came together on the parade square at Purbright and carried out a full rehearsal. And even though it was a rehearsal, it was a very moving occasion. Every participant has been carefully chosen for a personal link or an affiliation with the Duke of Edinburgh and representatives from the University 
units he was closest to make up what's being called a special relationship group at the front. And from those that I spoke to, there was certainly a feeling that they're saying goodbye to one of their own. And the man in charge of the parade, and you'll see him leading from the front on the day, is Brigade Major Lieutenant Colonel Guy Stone. It seems to have gone to uh, the standard we would expect at this stage. There's work to do, but we're confident that we are ready for Saturday. And what details do we have about the day? We do have quite a lot of details now. The service will be preceded by a ceremonial procession inside the grounds of Windsor Castle. Prince Philip's coffin will be placed on a purpose-built Land Rover designed by the Duke himself by a bearer party of Grenadier Guards. In the quadrangle will be representatives drawn from units he was especially close to. They include the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, the Grenadier Guards, four Scots, the Intelligence Corps and the Royal Gurkha Rifles. The Duke of Edinburgh was colonel of the Band of the Grenadier Guards for 42 years and they will lead the procession, followed by the Major General's party and then the service chiefs. Members of the royal family and the Duke of Edinburgh's household will walk behind the coffin, the route flanked by military pallbearers. The King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery will fire minute guns from the East Lawn for the duration of the procession. The national anthem will be played by the Rifles Band as the coffin enters the cloister at Windsor. A Royal Navy piping party will pipe the still once the Land Rover is stationary at the foot of the west steps of St George's Chapel. The bearer party uh, will be Royal Marines. They'll proceed up the west steps, halting on the second landing, and the piping party will pipe the side. And lining the west steps will be two detachments from the household cavalry. On one side, the lifeguards. On the other side, the blues and royals. And the Duke of Edinburgh's naval cap and sword will be placed on the coffin ahead of the service, and His Royal Highness's insignia will be laid on the altar of the chapel. Charlotte, thank you for that. Uh, Michael Clark, you have your own memories of him, don't you? Uh, oh, yes. Um, uh, in uh, 2011, I, I had the fun of going to Windsor for the evening and staying overnight with a group of people, five or six of us. Uh, the American ambassador was there, Ambassador Sussman and Neil McGregor from the British Museum was there. And the Queen had a bit of a cold that day and she wasn't feeling too great. And the Duke was... Uh, he was everywhere that evening. He was he was genuinely funny. We didn't just laugh to be polite. I mean, he had us all chuckling all <laughs> evening. And we went through the library in Windsor and the library staff had laid out things about the British Museum and, in my case, things about Rusi from the archives. And he knew a lot about them. He'd obviously done his homework. I thought, gosh, this man really does look after these events. And he was he was very, very good. It was great fun. Michael Clark, really good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. An inventor from Derbyshire is adapting a Toyota Hilux, a vehicle used by special forces, to be able to save the lives of all of its passengers if it were to come into contact with a landmine. Roger Sloman is hoping to create the first of its kind belly plate for forces around the world. Kirsty Chambers joined him in Lincolnshire as he tested two concepts up against a landmine. That's the sound of a six kilogram landmine going up against a reinforced belly plate adapted by inventor Roger Sloman, who's trying to create a belly plate to withstand the impact of a blast to potentially save the lives of passengers inside a Toyota Hilux, a vehicle used by special forces. The objective is to save injuries completely, and to do that, you've not only got to stop the belly plate deforming, stop it failing, and reduce the jump height, you've got to probably have an active floor in there as well. 
but the first test didn't go well. So we haven't actually seen it yet, but what we've heard is the vehicle did travel a bit further than they were hoping. The explosion caused a lot of debris to come up and there is apparently quite a well. Not exactly what they were hoping for, but let's go gauge their reaction. Still in one piece. We weren't sure if the lower plate would fail. Um, and it has failed across the centre. It's, it's cracked further along, but it's probably okay in the middle. We'll have to wait to see when we get it out. In the first blast, the frame lifted off the ground for around six seconds, meaning the fall from roughly 10 metres would have critically injured passengers inside the vehicle. Previously, we've had the belly plate completely fail um, and the blast go through. Uh, this hasn't happened in this case, so it's better than the last one we did. But that's, uh, it's still not really good enough for what we wanted. It, this would not have been survival. Um, well, people may have survived, but they would have had severely injured spines. While it wasn't the result he was hoping for, Roger has another belly plate to test that's slightly different. Exactly how is confidential at this stage? It's being tested with a lower charge of four kilograms instead of six. Yeah, the initial reaction is that's quite encouraging because uh, the deformation is a lot less. It hasn't failed and it looks like the special ingredients we had in that one seems to have had a benefit. The team have now gathered enough data to take away with them to further work on reinforcing the belly plates. Yeah, it can all be done. Uh, I mean, we've done a 12 kilo test on a belly plate uh, with a standoff of only a foot. Uh, with a flat belly plate and, and that just had an 85mm dent in it. So it, it's how heavy and strong and stiff you make the belly plate. Um, but it's whether that is practical for the vehicle design in question. And uh, you can design for anything. With talks ongoing with international armies as well as special forces, the team hopes their idea could save the lives of many service personnel in years to come. That was Kirsty Chambers reporting. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all of my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye.